sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Well, welcome to Speech Pathology Australia's podcast today on I Don't Want to Eat That, Shared Decision Making and Dysphagia. My name's Kim Teresi and I'm the Senior Advisor for Speech Pathology Australia in the area of aged care. And I'm joined today by Andrea Whitehead, speech pathologist from University of Queensland, and who was recently a project officer on our project looking at a development of a position statement in the area of the role of the speech pathologist in supporting informed choice and decision making in dysphagia. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. Andrea, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about why you were interested in this topic and what drew you to apply for the role of project officer. Sure. So clinically, um, my background has always been working in acute hospitals. I worked in hospitals for over 10 years and I always found working in the realm of risk feeding, in inverted commas, um, really complex and emotional, but really interesting and quite rewarding. Um, I liked working with people to try and manage what they wanted from their healthcare um, as opposed to what we offered them, I suppose. Um, And then as I progressed into management and leadership roles, and I was the director of a speech pathology department here in Brisbane, I realised that the knowledge and the skills and the confidence of clinicians across the state and probably even broader varied immensely. And we were doing things like using different terminology. We were calling some situations risk feeding, others comfort feeding. Some people were using terms in really different scenarios to others. And it just made me feel like there was a lack of clarity for not only our patients, but also the profession and the other members of the healthcare team. So when I saw the opportunity arise to um, apply for the position of project officer, I thought, oh, that's for me because I'm really passionate about this area and I'd love to get a little bit of consistency in the profession. So I really enjoyed working with the working party on the development of the position statement. Um, but Kim, I was just wondering what, um, what was the impetus for Speech Pathology Australia in developing the position statement? This area has been a hot topic, if you like, with member inquiries into national office and we've certainly become aware of the increasing interest of the profession in thinking a little bit more about what our role is when somebody is electing to eat or drink at risk. I think there's a few key factors perhaps driving that because as we know, as speech pathologists who work with people with dysphagia across the lifespan. We've probably all come across that in our clinical practice over the years, but I think there might be a few things happening currently that's driving this increased interest. I think there's 
sort of that um, policy direction shift and societal attitude shift um, in terms of us moving towards a more person-centred care approach to healthcare and moving away from that traditional medical model. And that's empowering people to have, um, to be thinking more about being active participants in their healthcare and making decisions. And I guess the, the second aspect is probably um, seeing a, a degree of more caution, if you like, in, in facilities, whether that be across residential aged care facilities, disability uh, services, schools, etc., who are, who are grappling with thinking about and reflecting on what their duty of care looks like. Um, in in supporting people who have dysphagia. And that's prompted a lot of our members to, I guess, contact us to seek, I guess, advice and support around the parameters of their role and and, um, in relation to what they're being asked to do as well. So I guess, um, as an example, in my area, for example, um, in aged care, a lot of the time our members are talking about the impacts of the increased corporatisation of the sector, whereas once upon a time there might have been more local flexible solutions discussed uh, around supporting someone's choice. The corporatisation in the sector has sort of led to more centralised policies being adopted and rolled out that have... Um, I guess impacted the way that people talk about um, supporting somebody's choice and decision making around the dysphagia. So that really led uh, Speech Pathology Australia to consider the need to, uh, I guess, just as you said, you know, seek some clarity around what the association's position was on the role of the speech pathologist in that context. Um, and, and hence we set up the position officer, the project officer position that you're involved in and a working party to contribute to that. And as you're aware, our working party was drawn as a, a national advisory working group that had representation from across all different sorts of sectors, including uh, palliative care, both paediatric and adult, disability, aged care, acute health, um, probably forgetting someone, um, paediatrics, research, so a, a really wide variety, I guess. And of course, Trish Johnson here um, as Manager of Ethics and Professional Issues. Um, I guess we had an opportunity to have lots of conversations and I guess I was going to ask you, Andrea, about what you felt were some of the main points to come out of the position statement work mm. that we did. Um, that reflected on that role? Yeah, I think um, for me, there are probably three key points that I've especially taken away from the position statement. And the first one was a lot of the discussion that we had around um, the terminology and the definition. So I think in the literature, but also speaking to clinicians, it's quite apparent that we don't really like the term risk feeding, um, both because of the word risk and the word feeding. Um, But we had a discussion around how practical it actually would be to change that term, given how broadly it's used um, within our profession, but by other professionals as well. So we've sort of stuck with acknowledging the term that risk feeding 
uh, is used. But um, within the position statement, we talk a lot more about eating and drinking at risk or making an informed choice to eat and drink at risk uh, to just acknowledge that it's not um, quite so simple as risk feeding. Mm. Um, we also talked a lot about... Um, the difference between risk feeding and comfort feeding because the two terms do come up a lot and sometimes they are used interchangeably. But we identified that the key difference between the two was um, the overall medical approach to treatment. So if someone is actively being treated by a medical team, um, we determined that that would be more of a risk feeding pathway as opposed to someone whose goals of care were more comfort or palliative focused, that would be a comfort feeding pathway. Um, and I think that's provided just within the group that provided a lot of clarity. So I do think that would be really helpful for the profession. Um, the second thing that I found I think will be really great and very beneficial was a lot of our discussion around duty of care, so our legal obligation to our patients. And I think that's something that comes up a lot. If I'm a speech pathologist working with someone who wants to eat or drink at risk legally, what do I have to do? So we've stepped out a couple of, of elements. So practically, the first thing you need to do is provide clear information on the person's condition, either to them or to their legal decision maker. So what were your assessment results? How severe is their condition? Um, and, and explain that to them and what that means in real life for that person. You then need to go on to talk about all of their treatment options, not the one you recommend, but also the other options that there are and what are the risks and benefits of each of those um, decisions. And the final element of duty of care is really thinking about this is not a once-off decision. People change their minds and new information might come to light. So being flexible enough to have that discussion with someone multiple times, maybe with different people present, and giving them information in a way that's accessible to them, whether that's written information, verbal information, videos, and that sort of thing. And then the final key was documentation. This is a really big one for me, and I cannot reiterate how important good documentation is always, but especially in these complex situations. And I think we need to remember if we didn't write it down, it didn't happen. So if we're thinking about our, our medico-legal record, this is it, regardless of where we work. Um, our documentation is key. So we need to include who was present for a discussion. That's the person involved, their other decision makers, members of the healthcare team. And who was the decision maker in the room? Was it the person themselves or do they have a substitute decision maker? And what information did you provide them? So all of that we just talked about under duty of care, that all needs to be documented really clearly and in what format you provided the information to them. And then you need to document what was discussed, what the person indicated was their priority and preference, and of course, ultimately what decision they made. And then related to that, what your management plan is. So what diet and what fluids are they going to have, um, under, what, under what circumstances, with what level of supervision, what strategies, and all that sort of thing. Um, and I, I think to me, they're the keys. And, and the fantastic thing about each of those points is that they apply to clinicians working everywhere in any situation. So whether you're an acute um, therapist or you're working in aged care or disability, the same principles will apply to everybody. So they're so broadly applicable. Mm, absolutely. And another thing, um, I guess, 
Further to what you've um, raised that I often get asked about uh, from our members is around people being asked to sign waivers. Um, So I know that was a bit of a a conversation we had and we also had that conversation, didn't we, when we spoke to Kelly Deloro at the workshop last year who's a a lawyer at Meridian Lawyers and and she um, was part of a a panel that we had at the National Spa um, Conference last year. Yeah, um, I think we've also touched upon that within the document as well, yeah. Yeah, we certainly have. And and I think the interesting thing that Kelly mentioned was that a waiver really, it doesn't mean too much. So even if you have a signed waiver, it doesn't legally mean that the person actually um, provided informed consent to make a decision. So um, if you do work in a workplace that wants a waiver, that's okay. You can go down that path, but it absolutely doesn't replace the need to have those full discussions and to document it very clearly. Um, because at the end of the day, that that documentation of the dis- the discussion that you had is actually what is legally required. Mm, absolutely. I think Kelly's main point in that regard was around that, wasn't it? That. Um, just she didn't want people to think that just because there was this bit of paper called a waiver that somebody had signed that somehow that was your you know protection so she was really big on on reflecting what are the steps that need to have been undertaken for your duty of care and make sure all those things are done whether or not you have this bit of paper signed as well as yeah it might be a nice adjunct, but it, as, as you say, doesn't replace the need of all those other things. And I think the thing that also comes up commonly when I'm um, speaking to speech pathologists is the, particularly when there are other, uh, I'm calling them facilities, involved where, you know, perhaps there's some other staffing involved in supporting this situation for the person to eat or drink, um, where... I guess whether that's an aged care facility or disability accommodation or whatever are, are sort of um, directing sometimes some instances if not requesting the speech pathologist to write certain things in their notes and, and for what this you know asking them to uh, I guess document things in a certain way and the speech pathologist is really unclear about where to go from there there's often then issues raised around you know, in terms of what the staff are going to be involved or not involved in providing support to, for that person to eat or drink. Um, yeah, they're often um, the areas that people do come to us with. Yeah, yeah and, and I think they're really tricky areas, but as you say, they do come up a lot for a lot of clinicians. And I think there's probably two points there. Um, Kelly mentioned to us at the um, SPA conference workshop that um, our duty of care is to our patients and and that's it. We don't have a duty of care to other members of the healthcare team. So if a nursing staff member, for example, is saying, I don't want to feed that person that item of food because I'm concerned they're going to choke, it's not our duty to manage that legally. That's up to the nursing teams and the nursing management to to handle that situation. And of course, we will provide information and education and training as required, but that's where our role in that situation stops. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that we touch on in the position statement, which is really important, is our scope of practice. And as as professionals, we 
We love to help people. We want to help people. And especially in these complex situations, we feel that a lot of it is our responsibility. Um, And sometimes other members of the healthcare team put a lot of that pressure on us. But I think it's important to remember that as a speech pathologist, you are never solely responsible for the healthcare management of a person. It is never completely up to us. And sometimes we will be asked to do things, but you need to step back and think, is that within my scope of practice? And if it's not, you absolutely can say no. And you should say no (laughs) Um, to stick within your scope and you don't have to do something that's unethical or outside of your area of practice. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, within the paper we also talk about the, the times when that multidisciplinary approach will be good, you know, to have that um, multidisciplinary conversation subsequently mm-hmm. with um, the person and their family around the next steps is, is an important part of that um, yeah. management of that situation as well. Yeah. So we have the position statement now available for members. Yeah. Yeah, it's very exciting. Very exciting. The next steps from Speech Pathology Australia's perspective are that we will be looking to develop a clinical guideline in this area. So we really see position statements as being a really short document that is the association's position on the what. What is the role? Um, The clinical guideline now will go, hopefully, give us a chance to go into more detail around the how. How do we go about actually implementing this and what are those implications? Um, as well as planning some more professional development, I guess, in this area, given the success and the interest in the workshop last year at the National Conference. So that's our next steps. Thanks very much, Andrea, for your time today, but also particularly for your contribution and leading the working party and um, developing the position statement for the association. Um, It's been wonderful working with you and I hope we can have a further chat soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think it's such an exciting area of practice for the profession and I'm really um, looking forward to to seeing where this all goes. Thank you, Kim. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.